Welcome to Spade Work, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work. What organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them. I am Antje Dieterich, and today I'll be talking about organized labor in the crisis of neoliberalism with labor organizer, campaigner, trainer and migrants' rights activist Valerie Alsaga. Valerie has an extensive history working within the global world of organized labor. After having worked nine years in the Justice for Genders campaign in the US, she worked to spread social unionism across Europe and South Africa. As an organizer, she's worked on campaigns that had pitch battles on terrains as varied as airports, service sectors, healthcare, and renewable energy sectors. Most recently, she's worked with Unison's strategic organizing unit in the UK and is currently taking a much-needed break. Our conversation takes us through Valerie's journey in the world of organized labor, a journey that makes clear the difficulty trade unions have had in adapting to a world no longer defined by the post-war settlement between capital and organized labor. Without a doubt, neoliberalization has been defined by capital's relentless attack on organized labor's institutional, cultural and legal foothold. And while organized labor has known since the 1980s that a deep and fundamental transformation of the way they approach class struggle has been needed, Valerie highlights a new political recomposition currently underway in which unions are taking off their gloves and are fighting for keeps. In doing so, Valerie sketches a long vision for a new combat unionism no longer considered with petty legalisms, but focused on developing and expanding infrastructural ecosystems that make radical and transformative potentials possible. And while this vision focuses on unions and the need to realign these towards combative positions, that focus is nonetheless considerate of the broader ecology of actors that define the field and is concerned with how to act and work together towards winning, even when that winning means failing forward. Valerie, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into union organizing? So I'm Mexican and my family migrated uh, to the U.S. Um, and I grew up in a pretty progressive environment. I was part of the Zapatista movement. I was part of the anti-globalization movement. Um, and I had a fantastic time until I realized we were losing badly. And although we were really needed to occupy space and protest, um, I realized very early on in that process that we were doing a lot of symbolic movement. We were on the streets. We occupied maybe 
the press, but that was not going to be enough anymore. And in effect, we were losing the big battle. Yeah. And I think for me, what was very important was that although I understood that part of my life to be about precisely being an activist that could work with a lot of other movements against free trade area agreements for myself as a Mexican in the U.S. Um, and we were fighting different different fights yeah, um, around free trade area agreements is that we were just in general being symbolic and not strategic. And I think for me, that was that, that was an important consideration because when I came to then work for Justice for Janitors, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot about um, fighting uh, strategically and understanding the, the opposition, if you will, as um, organism, as mm-hmm. understanding that you need to interject not where we need to, we think we need to be on the streets, in the picket line, right, um, in the press, but we really need to be in the, what we call in Spanish, la gestión, right, where actually, um, let's say, the opposition and capital reproduce, <laughs> which doesn't happen to be necessarily on the streets. Um, it can be in the workplace, but it's also somewhere else. It's also in a lot of different decision-making bodies, and in investments and in spaces where they are reproducing, merging, growing, and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. for me, understanding the terrain of the fight in a very different way, it was a much more sophisticated step, right? To go from like, let's protest um, to let's understand the opposition and figure out how to intervene in what they care about, Mm -hmm. what is going to cause them capital, both political, social, and economic capital. Let's figure out where, in, where do we intervene in a way in which it's a, bigger, it's a bigger problem than these folks striking in this particular workplace. How do we make this problem escalate to such a degree that this opposition is going to want to settle because they're losing more than they bargained for? Mm-hmm. So I, I want to explain that because in some ways a trade union or social movement that understands precisely what it is to fight. And and in some ways, the the kind of like the fun at the same time as the, you know, kind of challenging um, kind of rules of war, right? That we as the left tend to be very, very blunt object. We are not very sophisticated when we fight. And we tend to think that by just having a bunch of people strike is enough. And in property services in the United States, where neoliberalism and financialization really changed the terrain of these employees and the employment relations, it was very important to follow the money. It was very important to understand that even if you had workers striking, the money didn't come from the employer. It came from the owners. It came from the tenants the relationship was much more removed from the employer. I think a lot of traditional unions continue to fight here, mm-hmm. you know, and we hit the wrong target, you know what I mean? Um, and, we, and we think that that's enough, but the money has to come from somewhere else and or the money has been extracted from mm-hmm. other places, right? And the extraction of value and the extraction of, you know, the value chain as we understand it today 
was a very early lesson, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, I've been in this for 25 years. Yeah. yeah. So this is a long time ago. Um, and so I do think that those are the lessons, I think, that very early on shape the way in which then you have to think about your union. Now, there is a, a very, I think, fallacy between, oh, are we going to organize and have the workers own their power versus, <laughs> oh, corporate leverage. And to me, it's just like, this, this is not this or that. It has to be this and that. And it has to be elegant and it has to be synergetic and it has to understand that workers have to be the leaders of their power and their, and, and they need to understand why we're doing corporate leverage and be very clear about why and how they need to align with other people, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, I think it's important because I think how you shape your fight is how you need to align internally as well. But what made you join the unions as an organizer, concretely? Just my story very quickly is that I was an organizer and I, one of those people that wanted to go to law school and in the middle, in the middle I was like, oh, I'll give this six months. <laughs> um, and then it became 25 years, right? Or 22 years or whatever it may be now. And, um, and I started as an organizer, a Latina organizer, organizing uh, mainly women, um, Latin American, mainly Mexican from the north of Mexico in Denver. I went from organizer to lead to becoming the leader of my sector, very young. Um, and I came in a moment where we were shifting from servicing to organizing. Yeah? Mm -hmm. By the way, we need to service, right? So this is not an issue that, you know, an individual problem that has nothing to do with a collective particular exception needs some support and representation. That's a good thing, right? So I also, it's not this or that, right? Like uh, one of the things I love about my frame is that it's always this and that and that. <laughs> and the Use all the tools we have, right? All, right, yeah. right. It, it's, it's all, all needs to be recruitment as well, right? Um, but organizing in particular was the beginning of the shift when I came into this workplace um, as, a, as an organizer. And my job was to take over somebody that only service with. So yeah. I was trained to organize, and here I was in, a, in, in many different workplaces where the workers really hated the union and understood the union to be with the employer because what the rep used to do at that time was to come in, get in the office with the employer, with a supervisor, close the door and fix the problems and then come out as a father figure to tell people yes or no, right? Yeah. And of course, when you spend most of your time with the employer and not with the workers, then there is no way you're gonna, ever going to shift that the workers need to be in that room collectively. Yeah, charged by association or judged by association, which, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, Right. And so for me, it was very telling because I think I came both politically and in practice being taught that it was all about shifting into the collective. And so very early on, I had to figure out identifying organic leaders and I had to do committees, internal committees. These people had already a union, but it didn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. for, for them, it didn't work. For the balance of power, it didn't work. And very early on, I mean, I was I was very very good at connecting to the workers and explaining why power relations needed to shift from their own experience outward, right? So mm -hmm. I think I was taught, I was taught well by a lot of just justice for generous folks, SEIU folks. Um, and I think the technical side of it was very, very powerful, but also very early on, I had a very, a very gifted space, which also there was ideological backing, right? Like we, because of where I came from and because of the, 
particular folks that I work with, we also brought all the politics about migration and about why why it was important, right, for us to stand up to capital, really. And so I, although I did a lot of work that was technically good, I would argue there was always an ideological support mechanism about why we needed to understand the system outside of the workplace and step up, right? And I think as migrant, undocumented migrants taking on multinational corporations, it was a very clear moment where I realized, Jesus, you know, like we can really fight and win, mm-hmm. even don't think we have the power individually, even if we don't have documents, even if, you know, we are Mexican women from the north that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. have patriarchal systems around us. What I saw was a transformation of a lot of people into organizing inside their workplace, organizing outside of their workplaces, in their churches, in the community, with students, with anarchists, with, you know, like Native Americans and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and all types of organizations in Denver that were in alignment and the janitors that I work with, we were very much part of the social movement as well because we had a a network that was fighting against the Columbus Day. And it was a space where the Zapatismo and where Mm -hmm. rights and, you know, other types of rights were all at play. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because it's not uncommon to think of trade unions as inhabiting a world quite separate from social movements. But what you point out here is a potential for the two sides, so to speak, to play with one another. What's more, rather than thinking of the often spontaneous outbursts of social movements as opposed to organized labor, you point to creative ways in which unions can and should work with social movements. This means, of course, breaking out of habits of myopic insularity and towards an approach of using unions to support movements. So that's correct. That's correct. I mean, I think I'm part of that, right? Like I come from a different movement into it and janitors, especially Central American janitors um, in California and some in in, in Denver as well, um, were coming from their own revolutions and mm-hmm. social movements mm-hmm. um, and came with a lot of organizing experience that taught us how to organize as well it wasn't just you know i, I mean i think one of the things that i the, the 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 conflict around the alinsky model is that it's so ideologically neutral that, that you know that you need an analysis yeah and and to me the technical becomes a problem when you don't have the politics and i do think that then the social movements and these revolutions or these spaces where people have contested or, or have been repressed and stood up for power then will inform the way in which we also have a political ground in mm-hmm. which to in which to do our fights you know in which to criticize capital but not just be critical but be strategic about how mm-hmm. we fight them mm-hmm. um and so yes i agree and and i and i think that you know i always i always you know I, i've been working with a lot of trade unions all over the world right so although i went from the janitors then um that that uh, seiu goes global in a way and some of the first work i ever did was actually taking justice for janitors kind of global Uh, where I had to kind of go to other countries to kind of help them adapt. Mm-hmm. And, and what I realized in that process and what I realized continuously is that in order to organize workers, you've got to organize your goddamn union. Yeah, like you can't just and, and many times we 
organize the workers in order to convince the union is worth it, mm-hmm. right? In order to change. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important because I think part of the part of the the fallacy I think is that okay, there's shallow organizing and these people didn't go deep enough and oh it's not sustainable. Well, yeah, because you gotta own you gotta change your own organization in order to organize. That's what you mean by alignment, right? Organizing internally in order to organize specifically targeted worker spaces externally and connect these transversely to still other social bases, right? That's And that's the change to organize process that I'm talking about, that, you know, you can do a lot of campaigning out here and tactical wins, but if you fundamentally don't change the power here, that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. That's like the pony show that you keep bringing, but it fundamentally doesn't have enough of those leaders taking over a different kind of union, you know? And so the teachers union in the U.S., working in a very pro-organizing change internally in their leadership, as well as then doing a bargaining for the common good approach, Mm -hmm. really both change the inside in order to change the outside, in order to align with others, in order to actually robustly, unapologetically do strikes, but with the users and the students and the mothers and the neighbors Mm -hmm. and other movements, but it, 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 you have to do both. You have to do the internal organizing. It might take a long time. It might not seem that it's actually moving forward. And there are some breakthrough moments that seem like it's going to take off. And, you know, because it's a struggle within the trade unions themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And until we have those right leaders, um, it's very hard to move, like, the whole machinery, right? Yeah. So you'll have like what I call liberated zones or zones, regions, spaces, sectors, um, branches. Um, I don't know, the charity hospital, whatever in Berlin, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have spaces where organizing has changed the environment, mm-hmm. will become a space of example for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And they themselves are going in a process of change, right? Because there is like there is like there is like organizing is not like that by the way organizing unfortunately it's not like linear that, 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 and then it takes up right yeah it, it takes time because what you're doing in that in, in that period which seems like a silent period or like oh it's failing is that you're skilling people mm-hmm. and you are reconfiguring their vision and the strategy to change internally in order then to change externally and i think this is an important process right because when we talk about alignment, we talk about mainly the outside, but in a way you've got to align inside. Mm-hmm. And a trade union, just like any workplace, is a very it's a it's an open terrain. There's gonna be people that want to organize, that came into the movement to organize and forgot. Some people came through the fight and came as organized organizers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or rank and file leaders that, you know, led their fights and became leaders in their own right, as it should be. Um, and, and that's the point. It's like we, and, and there are the, a lot of folks that came in in a different culture, which was about servicing and bargaining. And we talked to the press, not the workers. And this whole thing about taking over somebody mm-hmm. else's movement, really. Um, and that is that is the truth. It's like there is a cultural difference among all of us. But then there is a lot of mapping and understanding that there is a lot of us in the trade union movement that want to actually 
change and do the right thing and fight and win in a moment in which we're not, right? Yeah. Um, and so I am always an optimist mm-hmm. that there is always enough of us because I think when people begin to understand how to win and change, it's such an amazing energy, right? And again, like, okay, the whole country in the U.S. might not be doing well in terms of the labor movement because the neoliberal agenda has been a 40-year onslaught attack into our labor legal rights. I mean, it's so difficult to Mm. win legally, right? Let alone the model and whatever. Just legally, the thresholds are so violently difficult. And yet... If you look at the teachers' unions, you're like, shit, you know, that is like a revolution. <laughs> they're just like, they're just like blocking traffic. They are literally making the whole city stop. And, Absolutely. and look at them and look at how they're winning, right? So to me, I do think that as the crisis is deepening, we have always a chance to kind of go deeper and, and, and do much more important things but within the constraints of the unions that i think are the big problem it's like we we get in the way of ourselves no small part of this is the legal code that the unions are bound to no i mean the law functions as a kind of straitjacket that unions operate in nonetheless we have seen what enough organization not just within a specific rank and file of workers that that specific union covers but within the users of services, as you called them earlier, and in the broader community, that enough structural and associative power can allow them to break free from these constraints that typically bind them. Quite frankly, quite frankly, you could do it without all this alignment if you had enough power in a union. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of people or plenty of unions that have so much power that the law does not matter. we're just gonna have a break now where are you gonna we have that power i mean i've been in spaces where the union is so powerful i mean the workers organized are so powerful the employer has very little to say that's how it should be i want to break that fallacy that we're only constrained by law i mean we're constrained by law the law was there to placate labor Mm -hmm. yeah yeah most of the laws came as a way to kind of have labor peace between moments in which, especially, you know, after the Great Depression and so on, in moments in which really the left and the progressive forces really kind of fought hard, the laws were to kind of create a labor peace. But, you know, beyond that, the, the, the workers were ruled in a lot of sectors, right? Mm-hmm. They were really paralyzing them. So I want to say that once we have power, it's a different kind of environment industrially um, because, you know, the leverage can happen in many ways. I just want to say that, you know, Mm -hmm. within what you said is right, which is we are because we don't have enough power (laughs) constrained by that, by the legality of it. Right. And I do think that then bargaining for the common good and other, uh, you know, approaches that talk about alignment is that we have to fight outside, inside and outside of the workplace. And we have to multidirectionally pressure those decision makers in an escalated way, like Kung Fu fighting. Yeah. Like (laughs) you don't punch and walk away because you punch 
they fall, you walk away, they get up and they kick your ass. <laughs> so you have to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. add it one after another, after another, multi-directionally with as many players as possible in a, in a campaign that escalates, both in public opinion for sure, but also in terms of ma- movement, masses, and cost mm-hmm. to the opponent. And it is in that process that alignment is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Because... You want to do it multidirectionally, and you're right, labor has very legal constraints uh, or many legal constraints, and then obviously other partners are more free to do certain things. But it's not just that. It's also around creating a crisis that is bigger than the workplace. I was saying to you that locality and geography, right? What we can control is our terrain, right? Labor will say, well, you're, you fight in the workplace, and we say no, because actually the workplace is controlled by the boss. I want to I wanna fight wherever the boss is. And the boss is many pl- things. I mean, the boss is a huge company across the country. It could be these leaders of these capitalist enterprises being very, you know, uh, doing all types of charities and, and their ego boosting <laughs> in many yeah. different kinds of terrains, right? And we need to be able to be flexible enough, have enough resources and be nimble enough to be where they are. And that that means a lot of cartography and understanding of where we need to be, but also how we're going to replicate ourselves in that kind of more rhizomic view of the world, right? Which is not my little, my little place and, and I, I will fight here. No, that, that is bad fighting. <laughs> you need to kind of command them from every which direction. And in mm-hmm. that sense, alignment, um, that has to do with the tactic and the strategy. The political has to do with the fact that bargaining for the common good and the alignment they're proposing, um, one is that labor has still a lot of more power than most social movements. Yeah, We bargain, and we bargain with big employers, public, private, Right. Absolutely. And equity funds involved, yeah. all types of financialization players as well, and that it is in fighting beyond the wages, beyond the bargaining contract for bigger things that society needs, housing rights, you know, migration uh, rights, etc. We advance the power of our base in and outside of the workplace. Yeah. Can you describe what that looks like concretely? And so one is like going beyond kind of like the normal bargain, you know, our, 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 like stay in your lane. It's like, no, we don't want to stay in our lane. We want to fight for more. And in fighting for more, we'll aggregate more power. And even if we don't win everything, the fact that teachers in Chicago are fighting against evictions and for housing rights during the school year means that we can align with a lot of more housing rights movements. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you're looking at the worker not only as a worker, but as a renter, as a church member, as a migrant, as a mom, as a dad, as many other things. And really bringing that whole society into the fight means that you will have more power. I, I really want to say this very, I, I don't know how to explain it <laughs> strongly enough, is that we will not be able to win the things we need, right, from capital, who has been extracting value in every which way, predatory as shit, yeah, yeah it's true. if we don't build enough infrastructure in our side. Yeah. And that's beyond beyond the unions, that's with the unions, but way more organizations 
and 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 institutions and and renters unions and you know migrant rights organizations and, and so on and so forth if we are not big aligned and fighting mm-hmm. right because that's what the right wing has been able to do and so how do we create that infrastructure it has to be with labor i would argue helping because we have a lot of resources still vis-a-vis others but at the same time we're not strong enough to do it alone Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we need to invest and help the infrastructure grow on the progressive side in order to win the big fights beyond the union. Mm-hmm. But how can we better imagine this kind of symbiotic and mutually reinforcing relation between organized labor and social movements? When I think back on the role that unions played in the summer of migration, as it's called over here in Germany, when a lot of migrants arrived from the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa... And when I compare that to the role unions played in migration struggles in the United States during the Bush years, they're simply not comparable. I mean, I remember looking for housing for refugees and at the same time looking at this incredible and absurd waterfront office space that unions have here in Berlin and thought, why is it like this? How can we think of using these like broader powers, resources and infrastructures of unions for social movements beyond the unions, like their lane, so to speak. I mean, just going back to Denver, just mm-hmm. because it was one of the first times in which That's I amazing. saw it work, mm-hmm. you know, and it was on my direction as well, which was very good because I was myself part of other movements. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing also about leadership in a union is that you want to keep your foot in, but you want to always keep your foot out, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not just a trade union person. I'm also a migrant rights activist, a migrant myself, and I believe in other struggles. So I, I with others in my trade union, I think we're very clear that for us to move the migrant rights agenda, because at that moment we were also fighting for the rights of undocumented workers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the workplace, for driver's license, for not being, you know, uh, basically round up and, and deported, et cetera, et cetera. That we needed to kind of really align ourselves with other groups that were also leaving themselves different types of repressions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think for me what was very interesting at that time is that the Native Americans, the the, the Native American movement aim was really fighting against this you know Columbus Day and white supremacy. And at that mm-hmm. moment, this is 20 Plus years ago, I mean, my understanding from the Zapatista movement was that we as Latinos were beginning to understand what this racism was about. And it was a very important notion, right? Because we as Latinos tend to be quite racist. Uh, apropos the fact that we have been colonized by a white supremacist project. <laughs> um, but what was really important was that then the janitors in the leadership of the workers were very keen in supporting um, the fact that that should be an, ab- an abolished holiday. And what ended up happening is that a lot of us ended up going to all these different meetings and marches in which then we got to meet other movements. Mm-hmm. And in supporting somebody else's movements, we had a space because that racism extended to migrants as well. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. we were able to construct the space of safety and understanding between all these different movements um, and at the same time, we were all fighting to actually change a law, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so we were able to have all those people in the union hall. But quite frankly, all of these workers were also going to the Native American, like, demonstrations or, space yeah, yeah. And listening to an opening of, of their sessions and the drumming sessions and the, you know, and we were learning from each other how, how we were all connected and had so much in common, yeah? And so for me, I think it's important to experience, you know, the, the biopolitical, we say, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the, the understanding that we need to put people in touch to kind of get to understand each other's fights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another example, and this is bargaining for the common good proper, was um, in Minnesota. So Minnesota um, is famous because they are like, you know, in terms of our movement, labor, labor movement, but also social justice and community organizing. They're one of the only places or some of the places more effectively doing bargaining for the common good, right? Mm -hmm. So I got to experience that as a trainer where I came into um, what they call a strike school, right? Mm -hmm. Where they had, these were different trade unions. So there was a janitor's union, Local 26 or CIU, a healthcare CIU, but also construction union, um, and there were and there also tenant unions mm -hmm. and also uh, youth for climate change. We came together because every single one of those unions um, had aligned their expiring date to all fall within genius a few weeks, <laughs> the same week. Yeah, that's so every single one smart. of them had aligned their expiration date to be at the same time and convulse the city, right? Because all these sectors yeah. were fighting at the same time and leveraging then the city, right? to kind of address bigger demands than each one of them. Mm -hmm. Now, janitors, the cleaners, were fighting around climate change. They, mm -hmm. were, they were bargaining for their employers to, to actually look at environmental justice and climate as something. So they were demanding different things, like you know, make sure that the, the, the energy that we're using was, you know, green energy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But here it is, janitors not fighting only for their wage, but fighting for something bigger. While at the same time, then there was like a tenant union that we were dealing with, um, Inquilines Unidos, Inquilinex Unidos, Unidas, um, who were fighting a, 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 a bad landlord, and they were like basically really pushing for the landlord to sell the property to to the tenant union mm -hmm. then the youth were just doing their friday strikes and so on right and every single one of these trade unions had a fight in their hands so what what was happening is that there were some of them went on the strike some of them won their strike some of them were in the process of several days of strike but they all helped each other real quick earlier you mentioned a strike school i believe can you can you get into that that I came in as a trainer with uh, Harmony Goldberg. We were um, basically doing a racial capitalism training. Mm -hmm. um, and we were doing that one day, right? The second day, it was about housing rights. Another day was about climate. And all these people came together in one big hall to train each other on their own struggles. Mm -hmm. How badass is that? <laughs> so by the end of the fight, right? Everybody that was not in a, in a labor union understood what the labor fights were about. Anybody that didn't know about Black Lives Matter understood why 
mm-hmm. capitalism and race, you know. Everyone was better. And genderized. Yeah. Right? Everybody at the end understood uh, why climate was an important piece. And anybody and everybody understood why housing rights had to do with everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And what that fight was about. So these strike schools, you know, it seems to me also a space that is, is, is an imp- they're important incubators for this kind of vision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in which we all then align our fights, support each other in our fights, and educate politically each other about who we are. And I do think that then I go back to the criticism of the Alinsky model here, which is without the politics. Yeah. That's not enough. So we can have a lot of technocrats that know how to phone bank and do a one-on-one. Great. But we need the political, ideological containers to be something we invest time in. Yeah. So mm-hmm. political education that is not very abstract, but it actually connects to people's lives and their position in those lives. Right. This is why also racial capitalism is becoming such an important part of the framework, both for bargaining for the common good and other fights in the United States is because we need to understand how race and gender actually are intertwined and utilized by capitalism to do deeper exploitation of particular groups of people. Mm -hmm. And one of them is precisely the care sector that you're talking about, because most of that work which has been feminized, mm-hmm, absolutely. genderized throughout history, and done by women and those other folks that do feminize labor, mm-hmm. if you will, um, are, 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 are devalued. Yeah, are absolutely. devalued because they're labor that is taken for granted by, the, by capital to be free. It's a reproductive, you know, so of course you're going to pay shit to daycare and you're going to pay shit to social care or, you know, mm-hmm. basically what we call home care or, or nursing um, mm-hmm. uh, home care, right? And it's important because I do think that that's part of the other side. It's like we need to understand that that labor, without that labor, society and capital cannot reproduce. So it becomes essential, but it becomes hyper-exploited. Ex- Absolutely. Exploited. And it's obviously genderized and racialized. This is where a lot of migrants are and a lot of people of color and obviously women. Yeah. And those who do women or feminized labor. And it's important because I do think that in this crisis, it became a much more obvious space of struggle and necessity for, for, for all of us. And yet, is that going to translate into bigger, robust, union investment and, and social movement focus, right? Absolutely. It should be, but I think it, it's, it's, it's that fight. So for us in the UK, we're trying to really focus on social care and also try to push the politics and the legislative agenda to try to make sectorial agreement and in-housing, yeah? In-housing a lot of this privatized, low-paid labor into public sector work again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is part of how capitalism functions. It's like, you know, uh, and these blind spots that we have uh, where we don't understand that those, you know, we should all support social care organizing or, you know, um, child care organizing because it's our lives at stake. It's like... And everyone feels it. Education, of course. Like, I mean, see some of those... I just talked to a friend of mine and she's... Her kid is in a daycare facility next to the university. And so it's a little bit, 
I think in the UK you would say posh. <laughs> and she said it's it's unbelievable how these parents like think that their job is the most important and all these kindergarten teachers have to go to work and just because they're quarantined but when they're not sick they like you know these stories of like hyper exploitation is okay because I don't have time to take care of my kids so you do it <laughs> there is like a very weird dynamic around that and also short before the pandemic actually I think the Kindergarten teachers from the public kindergarten, city-owned kindergarten yeah. structure in Berlin went on strike. Yeah, kitas, yeah. Kitas, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, and they were like that. They were in a similar kind of problematic position, like the public transportation uh, employees. That quite quickly, people uh, like the general society gets this like. Um, how dare you how dare you I need to get yeah. to work uh, I don't want to yes. take my bicycle I'm too late now and I'm I'm too affected by your problem now <laughs> but the, it was very interesting to to observe that um, that it was that it was so hard to get people to understand how if you want to have good public transportation you need people working there and if you want them to work there you need to pay them a wage <laughs> allows them to live in the city <laughs> you see a good campaign like bargaining for the common good and you saw it with the teachers unions yeah they organize the parents and the students to march with them right so the problem is that the problem is that we as a public get to understand the conflict when it's affecting us but we didn't get the memo about why <laughs> you know and then we're yeah. like oh my god how dare you but in effect that is part of a campaign that didn't take the step to go backwards yeah. and bring all these different contingencies and groups, stakeholders together in order to discuss what are the reasons why this is becoming unsustainable and why this bargaining has to be different and why we need all these parents and And, and, and kids on the streets together with everybody else mm -hmm. demanding mm -hmm. this, you know. So the, the, the shift, especially if it's public sector, is on the government and the way they're reproducing poverty or bad standards in the sector. So I do think that there is a way to bring along the public and to bring along all the stakeholders. And that is the alignment of bargaining for the common good, is it not? Is, is to understand that if we don't do the issue development, The demands have to be developed with stakeholders mm -hmm. before that bargaining in order to bring both an understanding and other demands that might actually bring more people into that fold. Yeah? Mm -hmm. and, and for me, that's, that's kind of the other amazing piece of having alignment or, or developing uh, demands is that you get to dream bigger demands than you thought when there is more people in this room. Right, mm -hmm. because we can demand housing rights. We can demand uh, better transport for these young children to go to the kitas or whatever. Right? Yeah. Whatever it may be that the parents and the workers themselves need in order to provide a better a better quality care. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, for us in, in Scotland, for example, we we spend time apropos of bargaining for the common good. We were really looking at some of these principles when COVID hit, and we realized that a lot of what we call black members, which is you know people of color, um, workers of color, uh, were being disproportionately affected because they are doing the worst jobs. That's part of you know racial capitalism, yeah. is it not? That you end up being affected because you do the poorest paid, most risked, uh, less unionized jobs. So of course, you're going to be more affected. And we demand very early on for for those workers to have more protection than mm-hmm. the normal mm-hmm. worker, right? Because they were most exposed. So, you know, the different quality of PPE, we were asking for the highest that, you know, the, the doctors get. Well, yeah. you know, and, and and that's the stuff, like the, the, the moment in which you're going to do a demand, you can think about a demand that is just like bargaining, or you can think about how racial justice and that bargaining demand, you know, basically how the bargaining demand needs to be centered in, in, in racial justice. Mm-hmm. That That's a different way of imagining your demand, because if you're just demanding more money, but you don't understand that that money keeps inequality like that, rather than, okay, let's spend time agreeing that everybody needs to go up a little bit but these guys have to go even higher and these guys have to have a pathway to better jobs mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so they can be training and different pathways for migrant women to actually go from cleaners to be nurses or whatever so mm-hmm. there is a language demand there is other kinds of things um because we are thinking about racial and gender justice in the process of bargaining as a trade union. Mm-hmm. And of course we do because we have equalities and we have a migrant rights office, but that doesn't translate into a bargaining. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit like the question of, oh, we all should stand together, but how to do that in practice? Most um, unions want to be um, anti-racist or at least non-racist and um, don't want to be a patriarchal hellhole for women like that the the idea is there but obviously that's not always easy to to implement right you have to it's it's an educational process when you talked about this getting more visionary demands i was also really thinking about the housing campaign over here the tenant movements the left party went in with basically promising functioning rent control and they pushed it through to have like a general rent cap basically and mm-hmm. the Supreme Court uh, said that wasn't legal. It wasn't in the right of the state of Berlin to implement that law. The general idea is not illegal, but it has to happen on a federal level. And the court is also, know your field of struggle, but like two of the judges were, before they became judges, they were like in high-end real estate representing law firms. (laughs) I mean, you know the game. (laughs) Like there, there were definitely connections where you can say, like that le- could have gone that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, they even decided that the people who did benefit from the rent cut in the past six months or so have to pay back. Oh God! Yeah, Jesus. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, That's "This is really bad." We had always said that this can happen, but. Aside from the fact that it, this is really bad for the people, it's also really bad for the campaign because they like also the CDU, like the Conservative Party, that brought the whole case to the court, 
um, was really banking on saying, see what those lefties get you. They get you in debt. That's what they do. <laughs> and what is very interesting, because over years, people had mobilized, but people had also really educated, had done a lot of groundwork, talked to, I don't know how many of their neighbors and neighbors' neighbors, about how the housing market functions, how that is like a huge international financial system and that it's not your neighbor that has more money that brings the rent up it's that guy who gets all the the what is that called yeah, all the equity funds yeah all the, the equity funds all the investors yeah. yeah um and these stock registered companies that just dish out cash every quarter to their shareholders and whatnot and so the the general anger of the city just led to fueling this expropriation campaign of like, okay, if you don't want to lower your rent, then you can't have this house any longer. <laughs> and I thought that was actually where that functioned, where where the the long preparation did transform the reception of a lot of people in town, how housing should be organized. Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to ask you what happened because I mean, so, <laughs> because to me, one of the things that I've been um, kind of in this kind of racial capitalism courses that we uh, do for trade unions and for, you know, for our members, uh, the idea that the right wing um, have developed a huge amount of infrastructure, including the law, including judges, including all types of decision maker bodies. Yeah. Um, and that somehow we need to anticipate the backlash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any anytime we go forward, they come back mm -hmm. and they come back hard. Right. And so that we need to really think through why this infrastructure has to build and also our level of militancy, you know, in a moment in which, again, is like, how do we make their lives difficult? Mm -hmm. Right. Or what is it that they're trying to put in the agenda what is their interest in the next 10 years and how do we, you know, how do we get in the, in the way of that? Mm -hmm. And so obviously then electoral, electoral strategies are really important because you have to have power to govern in a different way. Mm -hmm. Right. So that we also, the political education has to be about how we got to go from trade unions into trade union folks becoming the candidates we're voting in. Yeah. So that's another shift in subjectivity, right? Because a lot of us are like, oh, power is corrupting or the state. You know, in Spanish we say, you know, adentro, afuera y en contra, right? Mm -hmm. like you gotta be inside, outside, and against it. Like you yeah. can't be just outside, just throwing potatoes, tomatoes at this stuff. Yeah. You gotta take it. You gotta take it and you gotta grow also the political breath of our movement. And I think that's another big challenge because... You know, we are quite behind, I would argue, on, on that kind of organizing, the political organizing side, which yeah. is just as important because we need to govern. Absolutely. And, and yeah. And I think, I mean, also the, the rank cap, um, it's not, it's, it's, they killed it. <laughs> But the, the court clearly said, if this happens, it has to happen on the federal level. It's like this federal state legislation system it's the responsibility of the federal government. And I think what you really saw... That's the same problem in Spain, right? That's the same problem in Spain. You have La Paz, you have like all these movements, you have this mm -hmm. progressive municipal, you know, municipal 
parties and, and, and governments that the left have achieved and they can't get it done at a local level, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's a trap. Precisely what happens to labor in the U.S. It's the same thing. It's like mm-hmm. you got to win in these impossible ways. And so you're like, Jesus, how can I possibly, you know, they made it so difficult. They rigged it so difficult. Yeah. Um, that we got to be way bigger and our infrastructure much bigger and trade unions fighting as well. You know, like imagine if all the trade unions like Verde and Metal demanded housing rights in their bargaining. The interesting thing is they signed yeah. up as in like public support statements and like demonstrations. And there is talk on how to connect that even better. And I think the positive element, like two things you could actually see with the, the rent cap Because the big struggle was around actually implementing a law that lowers the rent that is already above it. Because these legislations of like, oh, you can't increase it for five years or something, that's still somewhere in the field of okay. Um, Possibility, yeah. Yeah, but this, okay, and if your rent is too high, you actually have to lower it. That is intervening in an existing contract and there are all these legal terms around it. <laughs> and so they made that very complicated. Don't mess with private property, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, you got the the unions involved and now the court decide to pay things back. People get really upset. All these big companies are like, oh, we're not going to ask that money back. We don't. We're so nice to you. So you, you tell me you don't actually need it, right? <laughs> so, but, so we're billionaires. <laughs> yeah, so um, they, they, there is like an atmosphere created. And I think that the talks with the union and the public support of the union, even though they're not yet really including it into their negotiation, their own bargaining, their own bargaining right? but there is this like hint of, of a lot of different forces aligning. And you see capital getting careful, I'd say. Like when the court decided that, the two big companies that are about to be expropriated, hopefully, will immediately like, we don't want that back. You can no, keep no, it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing, right? Because, I mean, I think housing and and, and all these like rentals, rent strikes all over, you know, I mean, we have them here in the UK with students um, and in the United States as well, mm-hmm. we have them. Um, and... Um, I mean, I think it's a it's it's a it's a terrain of of of, of struggle that is going to be robust, right? But I wanted to talk about the teachers' unions because what they did was really to pressure the city to not bank with banks that were involved in financing and or benefiting from debt that came from housing, and so and all these corporations. So the the banking relationship of the city was being put in question about banking with particular banks that were actually literally like evicting students in the middle of the school year, right? But it is it is a way to explain how all that money and how all that relationship between power and capital looks like and the financialization of particular sectors. And for us, I mean, the equity funds and the hedge funds and all the different corporate players that we also don't get to see, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because we we fight here, the relationship is here, we don't look up. Mm-hmm. And we don't look at the fact that all those politicians are precisely being lobbied by different corporate entities, chamber of commerce, uh, think tanks, 
different kind of business roundtables, etc., mm-hmm. are part of the lobbying mechanism that keeps the conservative party able to then, you know, have to stand up for those interests. We never shine light to them. <laughs> to we, occupy we it. the problem, yeah. but not the whole infrastructure of the right that mm-hmm. keeps pressing down those decisions and that kind of model of economy. Yeah? And the fact that we don't get to campaign above because they are like in the back. Nobody knows about these people by name. Yeah, Who are they? What do they say? How, why are they lobbying? What? All those relationships need to be exposed mm-hmm. and aired so we can really understand what that does, yeah, and really target them because they're all constantly, and that's the thing about the trade unions, they only fight here, but we never look up at what is keeping the whole structure in the status quo. And that, in my view, is part of the maturity of our movement, it has to be about the research and the mapping up, upwards, mm-hmm. and following the money and not hitting the wrong target. Mm-hmm. Because we keep hitting the target as the state is the problem, but the state is being influenced. And those those influencers are the ones that we need to really understand and campaign against. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that is like there is a, also a hesitancy since it is so clouded to, to understand. There is this feeling, and it's quite international quite often, right? If you look at the housing finances, there is on the one hand this very local in stone quite literally the house (laughs) but the ownership goes into really weird networks most of the time you don't know who owns owns the house you live in (laughs) you have these like managerial in-between companies and so there's a certain we have to we have to map them out and Mm -hmm. fully understand how they function and fully understand who's making money where Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are tax evaders as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, that absolutely. So the thing is that they extract things here, and maybe they're paying their taxes, maybe. But a lot, for example, I mean, I don't know about housing per se, but because I'm not an expert on it, but I can tell you in social care, a lot of the big companies in the UK and in the United States um, have been more and more owned by equity funds who mm-hmm. break them down, take the profitable side, you know, who only want the real estate, right, mm-hmm. and who then re-rent the real estate at a higher profit and it's just an extractive destroying approach that then we are left with something you know like bargaining for the common good says very often it's broken on purpose yeah broken on purpose and then of course you have to privatize it all you have to sell it you know because it's in trouble but you broke it on purpose yeah make it in trouble right yeah. so you extract from here, you extract from here, you extract from here. And it is important to understand those kind of mechanisms because I do think we have to shine light to them. Most of these bastards are tax evaders on the top of that. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, as, 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 an, as an entity, one, I pay low wages. So that tax revenue is not there because if you make little, you pay little. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I go... I, I I borrow money so I'm in debt. So now I don't get to pay the tax. On the top of the whatever taxes I should have gotten, I'm actually placed in Luxembourg or Amsterdam or the Cayman, the Cayman Islands, mm-hmm. right? So it's a formula to extract value from the public coffers, right? Mm-hmm. At every 
every state. And then you lower the corporate tax and then you lower the richest people tax and then you keep taking from the coffers at every state and then you say, oh, it's broke, private taxes. Yeah, it's empty. I mean, We have to privatize it now. <laughs> yes. So the formula, the formula of like literally we, you know, with, with our staff and our members, we go through that formula. We say they take here, 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 and then you have what you got. And then they make everybody compete on the top of that, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, what we have left is very little. And then they say, oh, the poor want it, the migrants want it, and then they make us fight with each other. Mm -hmm. And then all the money that was extracted and that is breaking the, the, the infrastructures that we need to reproduce our own societies are completely broken. And so for me, what's important is that this financialization question, understanding capitalism in its, in its form now, And really being sophisticated at fighting that kind of massive, because it seems so big and so impossible, but it isn't when we understand it, it isn't when we follow it, it isn't when we understand who the players mm -hmm. are, and we know them by name. <laughs> Then we can <laughs> actually a face figure to it. out yeah. how, to make some, how to make what they do toxic enough, yeah? Yeah. Because if they're invisible then we all keep thinking about big grandeur, you know, again, symbolic targets or opponents, but we don't really quite understand them. And I, I, I do think that's, that's, that's one of the contributions of bargaining for the common good, I would argue, is the idea that we need to understand the opposition in a much clearer way. Mm -hmm. To really do the research, right? Yeah. I think that is actually also an element that made the housing struggle that started off with like some small houses organizing just the tenants within the building against yeah. like a rent increase or something or then these companies also don't renovate right they yeah, they yeah, make it look awesome. like the poor people just like rock down their houses but they're just not doing anything they're not painting it like they don't mm -hmm. fix the heater they mm, all of this yeah because they want them out in order to raise the rents because berlin is becoming a Hot spot. A hot spot for yeah. all the hipsters of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. So, you know, they, they, they break it on purpose to get them out to then fix it and raise the target, yes. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not their business model to invest into the houses, right? They That's not what how, how they uh, function. Yeah. But I think that's why the bargaining for the common good is the, is the important thing, the common, yeah? Yeah. What is it about the things that we need as workers, as renters as parents as friends as family is that we all need the same things you know it's also and the powerful element of the 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 reproductive field like that you basically just <laughs> summed up because i feel neoliberalism has taught a lot of workers that uh, well they decrease your wage and then they still gonna put the factory For example, to Tijuana size, they used to make lenses in, in uh, East Germany. Now they make their lenses at the Maquiladora in, in Tijuana. Um, and there is like, I don't know, a thousand people working there. They, the wages even more decreased now. But all the reproductive part, you cannot... You, you can't have your kindergarten in, in an Indian out. call center yeah. or something like that. I do think that this, this opens up the other question, which is international labor... Mm -hmm. solidarity right because and again not symbolic oh we send you a little oh, we contribute. <laughs> and i mean like proper supporting organizing along value chains yeah yeah um in the different sectors that we're in right so it is 
upon it is important for organizations like IG Metal to help unions in Eastern Europe actually unionize and get their standards up, both to protect the market, but also to give workers the right to have more in those countries, right? Mm -hmm. And again, with them, not for them. But I do think that then the idea of international labor becomes a very important piece Mm -hmm. because, like you said, we also have to follow the money, follow the value chain, understand where all these extractions Mm -hmm. of value happen across all the different sectors we're in. And, you know, I mean, I'm very, very, being very general, but I do think that there is ways that can ground that cartography very easily for us to at least think about uh, strategic pathways, mm-hmm. right, um, towards the things we want to do in 10, 40 years from now, which is the other piece. It's like a lot of labor and a lot of organizing is so short term, yeah, and that it, it's not transformational, it's transactional in mm-hmm. so many ways. It's like we do a campaign and then we hope that's going to change everything. Well, you know what? Housing rights in Germany is going to take you some decades. So brace on, keep (laughs) organizing, keep building infrastructure, keep having funding ideas of how you're going to become a movement to be reckoned with. And you're going to be able to run your own candidates. And you you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. we got to think 10, 40 years from now. Mm -hmm. And I know it's terrifying, but that's how long it took the right wing in the U.S., to get where they are now, yeah? It's mm-hmm. been since Thatcher and Reagan on forward, and right now, look what we got. It's like, really, they are brilliant strategies, and they form opinion, and they and they create more and more spaces to control their power. And for us to understand that long arc, it's a long fight, it's going to be, you know, and that's one of the things I like about the janitors movement, is that we had a 20-year plan. right like we have to go where we want and go backwards and understand it's going to take many different fights right Mm -hmm. steps towards restructuring of our industry but that we have a vision to get to a moment where we control our industry where we are so unionized that we can actually you know be the ones that set the standards you know Absolutely. I feel that, that that vision can actually also help over these cold times or whatever you want to call it. And also sometimes over lost struggles. When you like when you see this more as a transformational process that you say, okay, we lost this struggle in this particular company or in this particular town or whatever. Um, but we learned something and let's try it over there again not to devalue that it's really for the people directly affected, but to have it's like as an organization, the idea to to have like a, done a step in a certain direction. Yeah, and yeah. if so that's this, missing, this, this, it's yeah, very yeah. burnout uh, endangering because sometimes that also means that within a struggle, you might have to step back and take a short break because there will be so many more struggles to come. <laughs> no, but I, I, with GPP, uh, people I was talking mm-hmm. to you about um they have this idea of losing forward the stuff you need to move forward mm-hmm. versus winning backwards yeah it's like oh i won this but actually sold everybody out in the process yeah yeah <laughs> i didn't align i only took care of myself thinking oh my members but i'm actually contributing to the fall down of my whole industry yeah 
And this is why you need that long vision, because mm-hmm. I think unions, we tend up to just fight for our members thinking is the right thing. But in that we're breaking the capacity of alignment with so many more to win the big fights. Yeah, because the other thing that BCG is very clear about is like we don't do this because it's just nice and lefty. It's because that's the way we win. By demanding way more, you're going to get at least what you want. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. And that, and that, you know, they're always like, they give you shit, you want this more, right? And you, but if you are always here mm-hmm. playing their demands, playing their game, you're never going to raise the whole floor. And that is an important part, right? Of, I think of the strategic view of a long-term alignment and again i'm you know you asked me to talk about alignment so yeah 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 absolutely i think it's super important Um, (laughs) i could talk about many more things but i think both the long-term idea that we're building infrastructure that we're building fights that allow us to move forward in in that knowledge that understanding that mapping that power that membership Mm -hmm. growth that funding flow all the things that we need in order to have a good a good fight i mean look Funny enough, I come from very big unions, right? I've always worked for very big unions for mm-hmm. some reason, right? Like SEIU, and I, I worked with, you know, Verdi for a while, and Iggy mm-hmm. Metal, and Unison now, or, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of my work is all this kind of work all over the, the, the world kind of thing. Um, but interestingly enough, a lot of the infrastructure that we used to organize was not the big fancy offices in Kreuzberg. <laughs> we organized workers in their neighborhoods, yeah. in the cafes, in their homes, in their parks, in the, you know. So again, you don't need a huge amount of money to meet, but you do need money to sustain a particular infrastructure. So I'm not trying to be bohemian about this. We do need infrastructure mm-hmm. and we do need resources and we do need capacity and skills and leadership. You know, we need to develop a huge amount of leadership in our movement that can lead those fights, that can lead that campaigning so we don't have to outsource it to different people. Um, but also that we can actually run for office, right, at some point. Mm-hmm. So I really like when I see my labor sisters and brothers like running for office, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a very important part of, of, of what we can achieve. So I'm not, you know, in any way saying that we don't need to build for that. Um, but at the same time, let's not, let's, not del- let's not let the limits of law and infrastructure or not having where places to meet because we need to be creative and we need mm-hmm. to be very, very nimble and we need to be, I personally think we need to be just, um, you know, rhizomic, organic, understand that we are already in many different spaces. You know, mm-hmm. we just have to make that leap mm-hmm. and we have to reproduce a lot of us because a lot of the problems is that we end up just bottlenecking in two or three people. And the point of also kind of this distributive leadership um, and you know, what makes things sustainable, I think I've learned a lot, right, in the past 20 years. I mean, yeah. I think when I was an organizer, I only thought of my fight. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's important. But now you need to step back and be like, what sustains that? Mm-hmm. What Absolutely. sustains that? How do we change the unions themselves? How do we take and invite more people to be a part of that movement? Because my biggest problems with the left was like, oh, no shit. So mm-hmm. then what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we have to... You being an amazing <laughs> critique, you know, of, of, of how the labor movements sell, you know, the people out or are like, you know, 
the yeah, cushion yeah. between labor and capital or whatever. I get that and I agree fully. I, no question about the fact. And yet what? And yet unions are one of the only vehicles where we still can sustain and invest and reproduce and fight and win. And we shouldn't then leave it, you know, to mm -hmm. ideological purity to be led by technocrats. Like in some ways, we need to go back to being humble enough that we need to kind of recuperate some of these institutions as workers. Absolutely. As Absolutely. Social movement uh, folks. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I think uh, I don't know if this is enough, but uh, absolutely, I'm gonna have to run <laughs> to do more reproductive labor. <laughs> well, I think that just about covers everything I had lined up, Valerie. Thank you so much for coming on. You can find out more about strike schools and bargaining for the common good in our episode description. Thank you for tuning into Spade Work Podcast, an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding and effective political organizations. Please find a link to Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors. We'd love to give a warm welcome and a deep thank you to Bridget Anderson for taking over production for Spadeware Podcast. We'd also like to thank Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Raw Magazine for their comradely support. <laughs>